So today, whoo, today's message, boy, if you uh, have been finding the book of Revelation challenging so far, hang on. It's about to get really crazy. In fact, today's message was, again, one of those texts that was like, oh, I'd love to skip this one. Because today's text is where, if I'm honest, all the crazy Christian conspiracy theories come from. I'm just kind of curious. How many of you, show of hands, and we can be honest here, how many of you kind of like conspiracy theories? Yeah, there are a few hands going up. Okay, like, I, I love them. Like when I was a young, you know, younger man, uh, like when Danielle and I first got married, every Sunday night, we would have a whole bunch of friends come over and we would watch The X-Files. Remember The X-Files before it, before it stunk? Like when it was still really good right up to season five when it was amazing and then after that it was just garbage. But we used to get there. We'd have about 15 people in my tiny one-bedroom apartment watching The X-Files. And so we would watch this episode and be the episodes with the cigarette smoking man and alien conspiracies and government conspiracies and all of this stuff. And then after the show was over, we'd spend the next five hours debating and arguing and fighting about which of these conspiracy theories was actually happening in our day. Like, which, you know, government agency here in Canada is led by the cigarette-smoking man? And if you don't know who he is, Google it, okay? But he was the guy always in the background, just secretly controlling everything that was going on. You know, is, are aliens really running our government? All of these kind of things. We love this stuff. It was amazing. Well, <laughs> then I became a Christian, <laughs> And then I realized we as Christians have a whole other pack of conspiracy theories that we do. One of my favorite Christian conspiracy theories, this is just a hobby of mine, is whenever there's a change in government. I love watching Christians freak out. It's kind of fun. Because as soon as there's a change in government, when a government comes in that the Christians didn't vote for, the Christians don't like, the Antichrist is here. And over the 20 plus years that I've been following Jesus, I have counted probably about 19 different antichrists around the world. Okay, there's one a year. And the Christians just go bonkers over this stuff. And so today's message is not to fuel the conspiracy theories. That's not the goal. The goal today in the text that we're going to look at is your discipleship. It's looking at your walk with Jesus and how are you growing in your faith to see how God wants to use you as a follower of Jesus living in the world that we live in. Remember, the book of Revelation is not a crystal ball. We don't study it to get gleams and, and secrets about the future. It's a discipleship manual. It's written to a church that is being persecuted. It's written, by, written to Christians by a pastor that these Christians are trying to figure out what is their place in the world. It's written to people who get Jewish, image, uh, Jewish imagery. And Jewish symbolism, they understand the language. 
we as Westerners, we as Canadians, we read this stuff. And because we don't have that deep Jewish tradition, we're going, what is this? What's going on here? And then we speculate and create all these conspiracy theories. Right, So today's text is part of a larger story, the, the kind of Revelations chapter 11 all the way to Revelations chapter 15. It's a larger story that we're seeing here, that there is a battle raging. There is a spiritual war that is happening. Um, in uh, Daryl Johnson's book, uh, Discipleship on the Edge, which is one of the many books that I'm using to put this series together, he describes this section, and the nerd in me just absolutely love how he described it. He calls this section of Revelation the Phantom Menace. It's a Star Wars quote, in case you didn't catch that. Okay? And he describes it that there is a force out there. Now, in Star Wars, the force is dark side and light side, both having to stay in balance. But in the book of Revelation, this force that is at play, this phantom menace, is nothing but dark. And to quote Yoda, one of my favorite teachers, when people ask, is the dark side stronger? No. But it's quicker. It's easier. And it's more seductive. And that is the truth that you're actually going to see from the book of Revelation here. Is this dark force, this phantom menace that is attacking Christians all throughout the history of the church can be quicker, can be easier, and it can be more seductive. That's why this is about discipleship. It's not about a crystal ball. So let me read today from this chapter. I'm going to read all of chapter 13. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, there are some in the back of the room that you can, you can take one of those as a gift today. If you're joining us at Greenbelt Online and you're your family doesn't own a physical Bible, send me an email and we will email, uh, not email, how can I email you a physical Bible? I will mail you a physical Bible so that your family can own a Bible. So here, Revelations chapter 13, I'm going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> it gets crazy. Here we go. So it talks about the dragon. So Jazz introduced the dragon to us last week. It says, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, and it had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. Excuse me. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. On one of the heads of the beast seemed to have been a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on a part of God's people. And then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns, two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It, per- it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. May God please, in his mercy, give us understanding of his holy word. Amen. Exactly. What we see here, Revelations chapter 13, oh my goodness. This can go down so many rabbit holes and lead us into so many conspiracy theories about so many things. But again, this letter is written in context. It's written in a world that is real. It is written to a church that is real, real people dealing with real issues. So the trick of the interpretation of a section like this is not just to read it and for us to come up with a lot of our own man-made conclusions is you need to figure out how this relates to the Old Testament. There's a really cool diagram, and I just saw a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine just posted this on Twitter this past week. And what it is, it's this big giant circle. And in this big giant circle, there's a little section where it's got all 66 books of the Bible in there that go all the way around the circle. And what they do is from every book in the Bible, starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation, they make a line that if a book refers to another book of the Bible. And you remember that, what was that, that spirograph? Remember spirograph when you were little kids? You took a pen and you drew it around a circle and you made a really cool pattern. When you do that with the Bible, it's absolutely stunning. These lines that jump from book to book to book to book. Guess, guess what book? makes more reference to the Old Testament than any other book. Revelation. You cannot understand Revelation if you don't understand your Old Testament. And what I see so often in our discipleship as the Western church, we don't understand the Old Testament. <laughs> we, can't, we like Jesus. We like grace. We like God's mercy. We like Paul's theology. 
but we don't know what to do with Leviticus. What do we do with don't cook a goat in its mother's milk? What do we do with infectious skin diseases? What do we do with women's monthly cycles in the church? I don't want to know. That's your issue. You know, like there's so many things about Revelation, uh, not Revelation, the Old Testament, that we struggle with figuring it out in the modern day church. So obviously Revelation, because we don't understand the Old Testament, we don't really see how it relates, right? But what we do see in here is we see a trinity. We see a dragon. We see two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. We see a trinity. And Satan's ploy from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden is to imitate God. You see, Satan wants worship, Satan wants the people of God, humanity, to not worship God. He wants that worship for himself. And so Satan, in his great deception, imitates God again and again and again. And so it's not a surprise that we see a trinity as a deception from, to take people away from God's trinity, a father, son, and Holy Spirit. In Satan's ploy, you've got the dragon, the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth. And we'll explain what those are. Right? And what we know about this dragon, that Jazz showed us last week, is this dragon hates Jesus. Hates him. Not just indifferent to him. Despises him with everything and is doing everything possible to destroy the work of Jesus, right? And so this language and this imagery here, again, gets very easily understood by the original hearers of it. So let me use this as an example here. I got this picture that I want to show up on the screen here. Okay, so here's a picture of a bear and an eagle that are mad at each other, right? If you grew up during the Cold War, you know what that picture means, right? How many of you are like, okay, gray-haired people like me, you remember the 80s. You remember Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev and the Cold War and the threats of, I remember in 1980, we were practicing nuclear war drills in my French-Canadian Roman Catholic school that I grew up in where we had to practice hiding under these little wooden desks. I'm like sitting there. I was like nine under this wooden desk going, this is going to save me from a nuke? I don't think so. But we had to practice it anyways. See, this image, we understand it. This is the United States against Russia in the 80s. It's the same thing in this text. When you read about dragons, when you read about the beast of the earth, when you read about the beast of the sea, when you read about the mark of the beast, they get it. It's exactly like how you and I are able to interpret this image. They are able to, inter- uh, to interpret this image as well. So let's explore these three things. I want to talk today about the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth, and I want to talk about the mark of the beast. Not as a crystal ball, 
but as it pertains to your walk with God, your discipleship. So first question is, who is, what is the beast of the sea? What's fascinating when you study this section here, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will easily figure out who this is because the words are nearly identical to Daniel chapter 7. See, Daniel was an Old Testament prophet. He was during the time of the exile when another nation came in and completely destroyed Israel, took everyone out of Israel and put them into slavery. And Daniel was there and there was a king who was commanding the people of God to worship the king as God. And we read about in Daniel, we read about this in the Old Testament, that there were a number of young men who refused to bow down to worship this king, and they were thrown into a pit of fire. And God kept them alive in their faithfulness to him. But the language of Daniel chapter 7 is almost word for word exactly the same as this chapter here in Revelation chapter 13. For example, in Daniel chapter 7 verse 3, it talks about four beasts. And each one, so it says here in Daniel 7, 3, it says there were four beasts, each different from the others that came up out of the sea. And then Daniel describes these other, these four beasts. He says the first one was like a lion, exactly like what John says. The second looked like a bear, exactly like what John says. The other beast looked like a leopard. Exactly like what John says. John's making a direct relationship here to Daniel chapter 7. So if you want to know who the beast of the sea is, you got to flip your Bible way back and you got to actually study Daniel chapter 7. What is that vision? What is that image that Daniel has been given? Well, as you study this and as you unpack it and as we look through it, and I'll just summarize it. If you don't believe me, Google it for yourself. Okay, get a book, read it, study it. I've got to do the Coles Notes version of it. Daniel's talking about government. And we see through Daniel's prophecies that there are a number of human governments that come up in human history that are probably being referred to in Daniel's vision. Talking about Babylon, talking about Persia, talking about Mede, talking about Greece. In John's day, he's probably talking about Rome, about the persecution that has begun to happen, exactly like the persecution was in Daniel's day, right? And what the dragon is doing through the beast of the sea is the dragon manipulates human government to work against God. Now you can see why we as Christians create all these conspiracy theories about government, <laughs> Because it's what the Bible teaches. I would love to be a political advisor one day. That's kind of one of my dream volunteer roles as a pastor. Like whenever I hear a politician get in front of a, a TV, you know, and start saying something, and I hear their words, and I'm like, oh, goodness, the church is going to freak out. Because I know the language. They don't. 
And they use buzzwords that upset us, that get us all freaked out. And it's like, oh, if you would have just talked to an actual Christian who knows the Old Testament, who knows the Bible, you could have used a different word. Because I know you don't actually mean that. But you said it. And now you've just upset the entire church. Right? This is what it happens. And so... The the trick is, the challenge for us in our discipleship, right, in our discipleship is to make sure that we're not, um, I heard Andy Stanley say it like this, stop scaring the children. In our political endeavor, in our political passions, we become a little nutty in it. And we start scaring everybody else around us. And we start freaking out the kids. So we have to be mindful about this, right? And so, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the application, right? So I'm going to ask the question, because some of you might be asking, well, what makes government a beast? What makes government a beast of the sea? It's not just because it's not the government you voted for. That doesn't automatically qualify a government to be a beast, <laughs> okay? Just because I, I didn't vote for you, you're not automatically a beast. But well, let's look at that. We're going to come back to that. So the beast of the sea, according to Daniel 7, according to how John is making reference to this, it's talking about when government becomes the beast and is used by Satan to attack the church. That's the first thing. Then the second beast that we're introduced to is the beast out of the earth. So, and we see about this, and we see some of the things, the characteristics of this beast. We see it, we have read it here in verse 13, where it says, This beast out of the earth performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Again, this beast, what is this beast doing? It's imitating the way God has worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, are you familiar with a story of somebody calling fire down where everybody witnessed it? Yes, there is. There's a guy named Elijah who called down fire from heaven. The beast of the earth also is told that he did um, a, a number of great signs. The Bible also quotes that there was another religious leader who created great signs, and that was Moses. So the beast of the earth is imitating the way God has worked through his prophets. That's why a lot of people refer to this second beast as a false prophet. And what is the role of the false prophet? The role of the false prophet is to get people to not worship God, but to worship the beast, to worship government. And as we study Rome, again, John is writing to a specific context here. He's writing to a culture that has become about the worship of Caesar, And if you do not worship Caesar, you will be executed for that. The beast, the second beast, 
points to the worship of the first beast. And again, what's fascinating when you study ancient culture, when you study how did, how did Caesar become God? How did Caesar become the person you're supposed to worship? It didn't originally start that way. Rome started off as a good government. It started off as a way, I mean, despite all the wars and the conquest, you know, annihilating all their enemies, but the structure of a Senate, a structure of leaders, we still use a lot of that stuff today. It was created back then, but over time, it gets corrupted by the dragon. And when you actually study Rome, it was actually the pagan temples that led the encouragement to worship Caesar. It was churches, religion that encouraged the worship of government. And when that happens, the dragon has a field day. Because this is what happens when religion takes people. It looks godly. It imitates godly things, but it's actually not. It's focusing on worshiping something else. So the beast of the earth we see is dragon-manipulated religion. So the first beast is dragon-manipulated government. The second is dragon-manipulated religion. And then the third thing I want us to look at, and then I'm going to try to attempt to pull this all together and how this actually relates to your life without you going onto social media and start accusing every politician out there of being one of these beasts or start accusing pastors and church leaders as being one of these false <laughs> beasts as well. Don't do that, okay? Let's look at this. Let's keep going. Let's talk for a moment, a few minutes here, about the mark of the beast. I have talked about the mark of the beast over the past two years more than any other topic. And no word of a lie. I've had more people reach out to me and asking me about the mark of the beast than marriage problems. I've had more people reach out to me about the mark of the beast than any other theological issue in the church right now. Why? Because of the vaccines. And people losing jobs because they're not getting vaccines or you're not able to go to a store because you didn't get a vaccine or you can't go to a movie theater because you didn't get a vaccine. See, when you read all this, this is why call me. I'd love to talk to these politicians, right? Because when you see that, what do we do as the church? Revelation chapter 13. This is clearly it. See, I can't buy. I can't shop. <laughs> My freedoms are being limited, so it must be the mark of the beast, right? And we get all worked up. We get all freaked out. So we got to look at this a little cautiously here, okay? So what is this mark of the beast? So John tells us it's this human number. It's 666. If you want to have a field day of trying to interpret what 666 means, just Google it. There's a million different opinions. There's all these mathematical formulas, and people try to spell people's names from it. Oh, 666, when you use this mathematical formula, it spells Nero. When you use 777 and you spell it out, it spells Jesus and all this stuff, which is a great read. Don't hang your hat on it for your life, <laughs> okay? It's interesting, 
but I wouldn't uh, camp out there and die on that hill, <laughs> right? But what we can understand about 666, because again, how the Bible uses numbers. We've talked about the number seven a lot. What does number seven represent? Perfection, completion. And so six is incomplete. It's not perfect. And whenever the Bible repeats something three times, it's very, very, very important. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Holy, holy, holy. Like the Bible repeats three times things that the Bible really wants the church to grasp and understand. So false religion, false government is completely incomplete. And I stole that from Daryl Johnson. I love that phrase. The mark of the beast is a posture of worship that is completely incomplete. (laughs) Completely incomplete. Again, because what is happening here? The beast, this unholy trinity, this phantom menace is trying to imitate God. And God's people... You and I, who have put our faith in Jesus to save us from our sin, we have a mark already as Christians. You can read about that mark in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You as a follower of Jesus have a mark, the Holy Spirit. And the dragon wants to imitate a mark. It's a posture of worship. Again, over the last 20 years, All the conspiracies about the mark of the beast. Again, make some really cool Hollywood science fiction type stories. I remember, you know, I've heard of older Christians, you know, and they thought television was the mark of the beast. I've heard of other Christians when computers came into our home. Computers are the mark of the beast. IP addresses. Everyone's got an IP address. What about this? We're all walking around. We tap it to buy stuff all the time. Mark of the beast, mark of the beast, mark of the beast. We can go crazy trying to figure out what it is. It's a posture of worship. And you are worshiping something that is completely incomplete. It looks godly. It looks like it will bring hope into your life. It looks like It'll bring salvation, but it actually leads to destruction. It leads to taking you away from God in deception, right? So it's not about what's on the outside. It's not about tattoos and microchips and things like that. It's about what's inside. It's about what's inside that's going on here, right? Because that's what the Bible teaches us is that it's from the mark that you and I have on the inside that it impacts the outside. (laughs) When you have the Holy Spirit in you because you've turned from your sin and you've brought Jesus into your life, you have a new spirit. That's why the Bible says you are a new creation. And it's out of the inside 
that it changes your behavior. The Christian faith is not about change your behavior, then God loves you. It's Jesus loves you and died for you. Welcome that, that you can have complete completion in God. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work on transforming you and I. The plan of Satan is to distract us and create all this other stuff for us to deal with. And it doesn't change character. It doesn't transform the world, right? So we, that's what this is about. So this Mark, the beast, again, we can, whew, we can breathe a little easier. You can't be fooled into taking this. You can't. You can't be fooled. The Christian cannot be fooled into taking this because it's a posture of worship, not something that gets put on us or stuck in us or put hidden into our cell phones, right? So it's this posture of worship. This dragon desires worship, but his worship is completely incomplete. So those are the three things. Mark of the beast, beast of the earth, beast of the sea. And I said, this is about your walk with Jesus. This is about your discipleship. So let's see if I can land the plane. Paul talked about the timers that we have here to keep us on track. Mine has said zero the whole message. So if you look at the wall back there, I got a big red zero. I have no clue how long I've been up here. So let's land this plane here today. Okay. How does this passage bring encouragement to the church? I think there are two warnings for us. I think there are two warnings for us as Christians, the idol of government and the idol of religion, the idol of government and the idol of religion. And I think we can see those two idols play out all throughout history of the church. We can see it play out in John's day. We can see it play out in Daniel's day. And I actually believe you can clearly see it playing out in our day today. The idol of government, the idol of religion. So idol of government. When John writes about this first beast, the first of the beast, the first beast of the sea, he gives all this imagery here. And then he actually tells you, he tells you what you should do with this as a Christian. Right at the very end here in verse 9. He says, after creating all this imagery and us trying to figure out what this means. Well, what should we do as the church? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. See, what do we do with beast driven government? Patient endurance, patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people, right? There are so many passages that teach the church on how to respond to government there are so many passages of your Bible that actually teach the church how to respond to ungodly government. First, I'll just give a couple of examples. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing to the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul writes about this to the church in Rome. And again, in Rome, that's where that corruption of a beast-driven government was happening, where Caesar was becoming the object of worship, the idol of government. Right? And Paul writes to that church, let every person be subject to 
to the governing authorities. But they're trying to kill me. Then die. That's the message of your Bible. Like, that's what it says. And, and, and again, we get like, but, 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 I thought Jesus was supposed to make my life comfortable and give me everything I wanted. It, no, we actually saw in here where John says, if anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they'll go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. God will use the martyrs for his glory. Who wants to be a martyr? It's weird. I, whenever I ask that question, no hands ever go up. Right? Of course not. But it's what the Bible says here, right? Because why can we do that? Why can we go to the sword as followers of Jesus peacefully? Because he says, Paul says, and again, here in Romans chapter 13, for there is no authority except for God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God in his purposes allows dragon-driven government. That'll mess up your head. But he uses it for his glory somehow. And we don't fully grasp it. So the response of the church is clearly here. Patient endurance. Patient endurance. Faithfulness on the part of God's people. Never give up in the promises and the hope that we have in Christ. No matter what is going on, when the world around us is worshiping government. And then for the second idol, the idol of religion. Again, at the end of this section as well, tells us in verse 18, how do we deal with the idol of religion? John says, this calls for wisdom. There are so many messages going on when it comes to spiritual things in the world. And, and, and I've seen it play out time and time again, just like you have, of churches, of denominations that seem to want us to worship government. This is why kind of as a Baptist, I'm a big believer in the separation of church and state. I'm a huge believer in this. To keep government out of the church... But you know what? The call of the church is not to overthrow the government and create a Christian government either. It goes both ways. Be a godly influence? Absolutely. Be a godly presence? Absolutely. Am I trying to create a Christian nation where everyone thinks they're Christian and goes to hell? No. (laughs) If we gain the whole country but everyone is separated from God for all eternity, we failed. This takes great wisdom to figure out right and again the bible shows us how we can do this like what why how can we see the idol of religion happen well in second timothy chapter 4 verse 3 it says for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear there's a little part of me little part. This is just a little bit of confession time. I'm going to end with this as an example. There's a little part of me in the world that we live in and the culture that we live in and kind of the idol of government and in the idol of worship <laughs> that one day I'm going to say something that the Bible says and I'm going to lose my job. And I actually believe that day will come because it's just what I see 
in the world around me. I used to get together with a bunch of pastor friends of mine. And when, you know, like, you know, you know when we started, you know, implementing same-sex marriage and all of these things like this, and our culture is messy. And I talked about this with some of my pastor friends. I said, it's like, man, we live in the nation's capital. One of us is going to jail on this one day. It's just going to happen. So are we ready for it? Well, it just takes great wisdom to deal with the world that we live in today. Not freaking out, not blowing up, not posting all these nasty things on social media. It takes wisdom to navigate all of this stuff. See, because the dragon wants to imitate God. The dragon wants to imitate God. So our discipleship hinges on growing in patient endurance. Our discipleship hinges on faithfulness. This is why I say when I talk about volunteering at the church and we talk with people, say, well, I don't feel the Lord is calling me to serve. That's not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible. That language is not in your Bible. That language is a false religion. Your Bible says to love your neighbor. If you hate your neighbors, you're in sin. The Bible says to get baptized and you refuse to get baptized, you're in sin. The Bible says to use your spiritual gift to bless other people. You don't do it. You're in sin. Like it's what it says. <laughs> we have to teach sound doctrine. So it, it takes faithfulness on the part of, on, of God's people. But it takes wisdom in this world that we live in. See, because you and I are going to worship something. But we can worship something that is completely incomplete. <laughs> or we can worship the one who died for us. <laughs> who calls us to die to ourselves, to die to the ways of this world, and to be used by him for his glory. Jesus said, if you seek first my kingdom, then everything else that you worry about in your life will be handed to you. (laughs) But it's his kingdom first, not my kingdom first, not your kingdom first, his kingdom first. And so if maybe you're here today or you're watching this online and you've never put your faith in Jesus, the first response, if you want patient endurance and faithfulness and wisdom, it starts with surrendering to Jesus. And you can do that right where you are by simply praying, Father, forgive me, a sinner. Father, forgive me, a sinner. Come into my life and make me new. And if you pray like that today, please come and tell me. I'd love to worship with you and celebrate with you. If you do that online, a little pop-up shows up. Please fill out that form so we can rejoice with you. But this is the call. This is a messy, messy passage. Read it. Read it. Study it. Look at it. See what God has to reveal to you in your walk with Jesus through this story that John presents to the church for your encouragement And for your spiritual growth, let's pray. Lord God, I praise you and thank you for all the ways that you guide us and bless us. Father, I thank you for this very challenging text that has spurred me on to even look at my own life of of how I am following you. And where I get distracted by things that are completely incomplete. (laughs) Where my heart is drawn to worship things that are not of you. And so, Father, forgive me for those times when I try to do that. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for us as a church that you would use us for your glory to make Jesus famous and known throughout our city and around the world, that you would use each and every one of us for your purposes. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.